Hello and welcome to PA Podcast number 24. This week's guest is David Jane, Head of Multi-Asset at Mighton. We talked about the demise of deflation, the durability of duration, and the crucial importance of currency, among other things. You, as the multi-asset team at Mighton, have been... Have been writing quite a lot about currencies in, in recent weeks, and, and clearly currencies have done quite a lot in, in recent months. Sterling in particular, as sterling-based investors, clearly you've had to navigate a fairly precipitous fall in, in sterling over the last couple of months. How are you thinking about currencies heading into 2017? Clearly is the case that you know the volatility around currencies is driving a lot of returns for funds in our space and as you correctly point out our investors are sterling based and therefore it's sterling returns that they they most care about for that reason and with the volatility around all other currencies and having seen the precipitous fall in sterling we would generally think it's wise to hedge a very large portion of the portfolio back into sterling therefore nailing down or or avoiding volatility from currencies elsewhere. However, on top of that, I would also add that having seen that precipitous fall in sterling, it's a very strong argument that the balance of risk is actually that sterling might strengthen rather than weaken much further. It already looks cheap against our major trading partners. We get a huge competitive advantage from that cheapness, which arguably shouldn't persist for the long term. And with most of the bad news in the short term out around Brexit, maybe you know the, 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 the pressure can come off sterling. There's another massive issue, of course, around currencies, and that is what the dollar does. Mm. Most people at the moment are taking the, the reflationary, accelerating growth view of the world, which we also are. And an inconsistency in that argument is the very strong dollar. The very strong dollar does act as a contractionary effect on, on, on overall world growth and it in clearly puts pressure on growth in Asia and elsewhere. And therefore we would, we would see, unlike the vast majority of investors, we would see again the balance to risk be that the dollar might weaken rather than strengthen. Uh, is that, uh, and I want to get into sort of more thoroughly the views on, on the dollar, but, but before that, in terms of that, that sterling hedge, is that consistently permanently applied almost or sort of, or do you try and uh, time it to some degree in as much as, well, now is probably a better time to hedge than, than it was uh, kind of four or five months ago? That's a, very, that's a very good question, actually, because, um, you know, there have been times running these portfolios now for some long period of time that, that we've had no hedging in place. And we've always run a very broadly, globally diversified portfolio. At the moment, with the high levels of volatility around currencies, the risk is that we lose our precious returns through a strengthening of sterling. And so we are greatly hedged at the moment, particularly having seen a precipitous fall in sterling. So we generally try to keep currency risk low at the moment, when the risk in currencies are, is very high in absolute terms, we're bound to be hedging back, sure. particularly because a lot of our fixed income portfolio is in overseas currencies. And there, you know, a very small move in the currency can wipe out your entire return. And clearly, we don't want that. I think yeah, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I suppose kind of moving to, to the dollar to some degree now, there, there does 
the, the question around dollar strength is, is perhaps less, uh, to my mind, less about whether it strengthens or weakens from here, but what the drivers of that strength or that weakness are almost, mm. in as much as if you're, if you're expecting to see the dollar ratchet up significantly higher from here, is that because of people coming in as a safe haven play or is it because they're, they're expecting you know, growth to, to come in much more strongly or, or vice versa? And, and I suppose that, that to my mind is what I'm trying to get to from a, a, a question on the dollars. What are you expecting the drivers to be for that currency? Yeah. I think the market's broad view on the dollar, not ours, is that US economic strength argues for an increasing pace of interest rate increases and therefore argues for a strong dollar. And that has broadly been the market's view. And then you get thrown in additional and peripheral arguments around that, such as repatriation of capital that's held by US companies overseas, although that, I think that's a very weak argument because most of that capital is already held in dollars, it's just held in dollars outside the country. But you also get the argument demand for dollar assets because of the strength of the US economy will again lead to um, you know, increasing dollar. However, I do think it, it has a natural constraining effect. And if you also take the view that inflation in the US is increasing and that interest rates in the US will remain negative in real terms, I think the argument for a strong dollar starts to weaken materially. And having seen you know, considerable strength already, for me, the balance of risk is going to be that, that that's the thing that surprises people on, on in the other way, that it actually weakens particularly if you take a view that global growth is going to be strong because it's inconsistent to believe that global growth will be strong and the dollar very strong. Mm. I think that, that that's that's interesting and I was at a, I was at a presentation where, where somebody was making the case for, for a much stronger dollar from here partly because of a lack of dollars if you will a lack of actual currency outside of uh, outside of the world and, and a whole an enormous need to pay off uh, dollar-denominated debt in the, in the emerging world and those kinds of things as well. So, I mean, clearly there are, there are secondary effects yeah. and there are mitigating circumstances and all of those kinds of things. I mean, how, how do you see this playing out if, if we do see a, a, broadly, a broadly stronger economy in global terms and perhaps either a, a, a weaker dollar from here or, or a, a dollar that stays roughly the same sort of strength? Does that mean that you're, that you're positive on emerging markets, for example? We aren't actually because of the risk around it, in truth. So, you know, I, I, I hear the arguments that, you know, strong US growth leads to, through its external trade, leads to demand for dollars around the world. That, that, that is absolutely true. So it's essential that the, you know, the money creation you know, mechanisms remain in place to create those dollars. Otherwise, you will get an artificially strong dollar. But it's not in the US's interest to do anything bar create those dollars because it's contractionary for the US as well and that's why I think those dollars will ultimately be created and, and therefore we needn't expect it to be too strong. And you already see policymakers in the states trying to talk down the dollar. If they fail to talk it down they're clearly going to intervene to get it down because sure. it is contractionary. Now when you come on to a view on emerging markets I think that's actually one of the more interesting but actually quite difficult things to resolve at the moment because clearly strong US economy would generally mean that you ought to be bullish on emerging markets because clearly you know the biggest trading partners the people who provide the goods 
that the US consumers will consume are the likes of China and so on and so forth. So you're going to see demand through China. However, I think, you know, the difficulty around the trade wars, the, you know, the, the, the at least positioning for changing the terms of trade that the US is having. And then, you know, in, in a peripheral sense, you can throw in those issues around that we've already mentioned around the amount of dollar denominated debt in those economies, make that decision less clear than it would be to say by Europe and Japan, who are direct, also direct beneficiaries of increasing US growth, because they also export a lot to, to the US, that don't have the issues mm. that China and other emerging markets might have in terms of changing trade barriers, changing tariffs and this, that and the other. So you can get the same exposure to that growth, the same valuations in many cases, but remove one of the potential risks around it. So from a risk reward point of view, we think Japan is more attractive than Southeast Asia right here. But, uh, I take the point, and, and I think, and, and not to get too bogged down in politics, but but I, I can't see these uh, some of the moves on on trade going very well in the long term. Partly because of things like you know saying that the Keystone Pipeline needs to be made with U.S. steel, for example, goes against WTO conventions and all sorts of things like that. So they 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 do seem to be extenuating circumstances and sort of factors that are perhaps not as well perceived in the market as, as they, they should be yet, and, and perhaps by the, the, the president himself. But but I suppose in, in amongst that, so there is a lot of uncertainty, there is a lot of um, un, or difficult to navigate terrain coming coming down the, down the pipe, if you will. How do you then go about allocating assets in that sort of environment? You, you really have to think about risk reward ultimately, and the balance of risk. Broadly, we think that, you know, the economies have broken through following that very long period of slow growth post financial crisis. And it's evident to see that, you know, that the US economy in particular, the UK to some degree, were breaking through and were accelerating well before the Trump story. This is a, you know, a story that predates Trump. Trump merely has spun that wheel a lot faster. So if you look, that's where the growth is in the world. You can then say broadly that we are in a world economy with accelerating growth, accelerating inflation. There is a bias towards interest rates rising. You're naturally going to have a preference for equity over fixed income. You're then going to think within equity given that accelerating growth, you want clearly different types of equity than have been the ones that worked for the last 10 years. So you're going to be looking for financials, materials and industrials rather than defensives, pharmaceuticals, utilities and fast moving consumer goods, all of which are regarded as broadly the bond proxies. And that would make you look at different markets, at different economies. Broadly, it seems clear to us that the safe place to be is going to be the US because that's where the heart of it is and they they aren't going to put trade barriers up against themselves so that clearly you know and the US being a naturally self-sufficient economy he can make these positions it's interesting what you you think you know you say about WTO it seems to me that the US is broadly under Trump taking the view that you know all these international organizations are only good so long as they're good for us. Mm-hmm. And if they're not good for us, we're not interested. 
you know, and he's he's made statements around NATO that you know, if NATO's to work, everybody else has to pull their weight too. And there's, you know, from a U.S. perspective, there's some truth in that. You know, they they contribute the vast bulk of the budget to defend Europe. Yeah. So why would they be doing that? And their attitude to defending Japan and the Philippines has been rather similar. You know, why are we spending our money to look after you chaps? And you could argue the same around WTO from a US perspective, us from a global perspective, find it quite difficult. But from their perspective, if those trade agreements are not working for them, why should they respect them? They are the world's biggest economy, they have all the power. And Trump is looking like at, at the world, not from a traditional political point of view. He's looking at the world from a businessman's negotiation point of view. And if he's got all the cards and all the money, he can have the stronger negotiation and he can squish the weak. Now, we may, we may find that unpleasant and we may find it difficult to deal with, but that's our job is not to judge him. Our job is to find ways of making money out of the reality. Mm for our clients and clearly you know it looks good for growth for those parts of the world that can benefit from that growth it makes the risks around emerging markets and very trading order or oriented economies or low labor oriented economies look too high really to take a a strong view on that but the you know but broadly it would mean you would be positive on developed equities positive you know of course you know, one of the biggest deflationary effects was the opening up of the world to trade. If we're moving the other direction, that would say this is reflationary. Yeah. Broadly, you know, it, it, it's quite clear. So in many ways, equity markets look like the opposite of before. So you own developed, own financials, own industrials and own materials. There's also the broad trend towards greater government spending on infrastructure and greater industrial spending on capital expenditure. So that would argue also for certain different sectors. I think the really difficult one to think through from an asset allocation point of view is what do you do with fixed income? Because if you look at the fixed income markets in a reflationary environment, through a traditional post-global financial crisis point of view, you might consider that fixed income would be a sell and that bond yields would go up quite materially. However, we're in a post-financial crisis point of view. We have the tool of direct intervention in, in, in markets. We have the QE tool. We have a desire amongst the over-indebted governments of the world to keep interest rates negative in real terms. Yeah, I don't think it's credible to think that bond yields are going to go shooting up here. They will go drifting up and they will revert over a 30-year view as they came down here on a 30-year view. So in the near term, we're not expecting two, three percent rises in bond yields that you might have seen pre-financial crisis at this stage in the cycle, given the rapid acceleration of inflation. We think that's constrained US bond yields probably with an upper bound of three and a half this year. So that means whilst you're clearly going to lose money with a corporate bond portfolio, if it has you know, a significant duration similar to the index. If you stay relatively short dated, we're not see the rate rises that perhaps you would normally have done in a pre-financial crisis world, you can earn at least your income. Certainly no capital gain. Is, is there a sense that then you, you need to be 
uh, much more focused on short duration on sort of because last year that would argue have be have been the wrong place sort of to be to be yes. very short duration would have been a uh, would have been a bad idea but but logically it made sense to yeah. have that sort of position is there a danger now that people go well it made sense logically last year it didn't work so we'll kind of stick with the, the, the longer duration but in a in a period that has shifted slightly and, and now suddenly that duration is perhaps a, a problem again it's a very good point i mean last year you know we did have a little bit of duration in the portfolios and we had no idea the returns we could possibly have made you know we we structured our bond portfolios with a target return of four or five and and, and considerably more than that because that little bit of duration we had kicked in with a very huge return this year our view on the bond portfolios is state very short duration because we can't plausibly see a scenario where bond yields rapidly fall from already extremely low levels. Clearly, we're foregoing the opportunity of return if they do, but at the same time, we're avoiding the potential for very material losses if bond yields, I'm wrong on bond yields, and they do rapidly rise. And you only need a very, you know, one thing that's changed around bond markets is historically at this stage in the cycle, you'd have been looking at, say, a 10 year yield of four and a half some spreads of 200 odd and the bond market moving one or two percent and and your total yield could offset some of the capital loss Mm -hmm. of course when you've got a uk bond yield of one and a half if it moves happen chance to two and a half that wipes out best part of eight years worth of income so your risk reward is materially worse than it was historically if you take any duration at all here because you'll start from such a low level. So we take the view, keep duration down at three years, we get the income, very little potential for capital gain, but at the same time, very little potential for capital losses. Hmm. Which arguably is, is, especially in a world, as you say, where, where perhaps gains are likely to be harder to come by, it's, it's going to be difficult to recover from sort of those sorts of losses as well. Talking briefly about inflation, because you mentioned something interesting that I, that I did want to pick up on, and, and you said one of the, the big deflationary effects was, was the, the opening up of trade, and, and arguably China's biggest import uh, export over the last 10 years has been in a deflation rather yeah. than anything else. What, and at the same time as that was happening, there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth with the, the introduction of QE, QE2, etc., etc., that we're likely to see a significant ratcheting, ratcheting up of inflation as all of this, this free money comes, comes home to roost. Now, clearly, that was offset by things like China exporting massive amounts yeah. of deflation and so on. If we see trade closing up, if we see significantly higher trade barriers, all of those kinds of things, and at the same time, at least... A, a stasis in the amount of credit in, w- within markets, what does that do to inflation? I think the, the, the key is, when you look at inflation here, ultimately there, are, you know, there is the short-term inflation you get from changes in resource prices and this, that and the other, or, or currency parities for that matter. But then there is the long-term underlying inflation that comes from ultimately wage inflation. So whilst, you know, sort of monetarists or monetary economists would like to think that, you know, if they keep pushing money into the system, inflation will pick up, you can see over the last eight years that plainly hasn't worked. And the reason it hasn't worked is you pour loads of money into the bucket, but it doesn't slosh around as much. It just sloshes around slower and slower. So the monetary mechanism to create inflation has clearly broken, largely because of the lack of final demand. Mm -hmm. 
Now we're seeing a, an economy where final demand is picking up. It is actually potentially possible that we will see naturally inflation picking up. And that, you know, trying to create artificial inflation through the monetary mechanism clearly hasn't been something that's worked at all well. So if there is demand for, for borrowing, if there is demand for labour, if there is demand for money generally, and you've got a more active economy, inflation could naturally pick up. And that's the thing that I think people are missing. They, they assume it's a short-term effect from rising commodity prices. If, if we're now seeing constraints on the labour market in the US, it will feed through and it will feed on itself. And, and also arguably a, a greater willingness on the part of banks who have that liquidity now that have shored up their balance sheets to a, a much greater degree now and perhaps have more willingness to lend at the same time as there's a, a greater demand for and, that. And that's also a very interesting data point at the moment, particularly in the US. Bank credit officers' willingness to lend has actually been improving simultaneously. There are so many different data points that argue for a stronger economy and increasing inflation around. And, and that bank willingness to lend aspect is, is plainly coming back through. Lacking in the past was, was demand. But of yeah. course, if you've got, you know, some people talk about animal spirits unleashed in the States amongst the business community post-Trump, that clearly is a feature you know, that the demand for, for borrowing by corporates is increasing as well. So we're, we're seeing most of the arrows pointing in that pro-inflation and sustainable inflation and sustainable growth direction. Very quickly, just to, to close off with, what does that mean for your allocation to real assets? Are you liking things like commodities, property, things that, that, that hold their, their sway in inflation? I think you have to to sort of look at them each in turn in, in a sense. So we, we have a material exposure to natural resources companies, whether it's mining companies or energy companies or so on and so forth, and the companies that supply those companies. Property, I think, is one of the mo most difficult decisions you have to make right here. I, you know, you've got on the one hand, you think, you know, in an in increasing inflation environment, you definitely want to own real assets. And of course, the main driver of long-term value within the property, you know, real estate market is wage inflation. You know, rents go, you know, rent being the cost of employing somebody goes up in line with what you'd be prepared to pay for that individual. So as wage inflation increases, rents generally increase. There's clearly lagging leading effects going on there. But in the very long term, that would all argue that you ought to be liking real estate in the very short term, of course, the dominant feature has been rising bond yields. And that, that has kept the cap on values and even driven them down. And in the UK, we've had the whole Brexit worries and so on and so forth. I would be surprised if we maintain a zero exposure to real estate for the entirety of 2017. That would surprise me. The, the, the final pro-inflation real asset that we could talk about is gold. How would gold behave in this environment? Clearly, again, in the short term, it's shown a huge correlation with the 10-year government bond yield, which is rather curious. Clearly, what you're seeing there is um, the risk-on, risk-off feature, not gold's inflation hedge. I suppose the, the question is, where do you think gold is going to go from here? Because it hasn't done exactly what it a lot of people would have expected it to do in terms of such great turmoil. Absolutely. I mean, in, in the second half of the year, instead of it being its normal 
safe haven status, inflation hedge status, gold started to behave like a bond proxy, which is really quite intriguing, really. And I think it reflects the very near-term feature that you're seeing in markets of rising yields and so on and so forth. So as, as yields rose, it becomes relatively less attractive to own a zero-yielding asset. However, over the long term, if you take a one, three, five-year point of view, if we are in an environment of continued currency debasement and rising inflation, gold's role as the ultimate hedge against inflation will come back to the fore, in my view. And so whilst we have a relatively low weighting to gold in the very near term, we don't expect that to persist over the long term. Well, that's it from this week's edition of the PA Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did or you have any ideas on who you'd like to hear on the podcast, let us know. Hashtag PA Podcast on Twitter.